Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. Here we are, on the moon. The darkness is almost purple. It's a rich, velvety darkness, with just enough light to make out the contours of the lunar landscape. We're standing on a mesa, looking out at a barren valley below. There are some craters, canyons, and buttes here and there that cast long, pure black shadows on the purple flatness. It's dry and sandy. You'd almost expect it to smell like sagebrush and to hear a coyote howling. Except, I suppose it wouldn't be howling at the moon. This is the moon. Farther off in the distance, are sawtooth peaks of gray rock. There are stars overhead. And sure enough, in the night sky beyond is the small blue orb of the Earth. It has brushes of white clouds, but you can still see the land masses of North America and South America. The brilliant blue and green colors of it make it look like a planet awake while the moon, the very place we're standing, is shrouded in nightfall. The year is 1957, 12 years before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin touched down. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. Over 100 years ago, a science fiction writer imagined that men from planet Earth would one day make footprints on the moon. The science fiction of yesterday has become the modern history of today. Uh, there is a hill in view uh, just about uh, on the ground track uh, ahead of us. Roger, Tranquility, we copy over. March 1957, several months before Sputnik launched, a mural went up at the Museum of Science in Boston. It was painted by an artist named Chesley Bonestell, and it was mesmerizing. It stretched across an entire wall of the museum. And it is Bonestell's depiction of standing on the surface of the moon. This is the National Air and Space Museum's Margaret Weidekamp. Great jagged crags 
above you that are shadowed very dramatically, and the earth hangs in the sky as you essentially stand in front of this giant 40-foot mural that allows you to picture yourself on the moon. Bonestell took great care to make the painting as realistic as he could, given the science of the 1950s. No human, no camera, no probe even, had been anywhere close to the moon by the time of his painting. So Bonestell relied on astronomy, and he made his best calculations of how he figured the universe should appear if you were standing on the lunar surface. And he thought about the time of day and the day of the year that would result in exactly the shadows that he painted and the picture of the Earth that would hang in the sky. Chesley Bonestell was a fascinating man. He was born in San Francisco in the late 1880s. Well, my father said I had a morbid curiosity, which I did as a little kid, <laughs> wondering what life was and what death was. He lived through the San Francisco earthquake and the fire of 1906, and then he became an architectural designer. Studied architecture in Columbia. He was always drawn to the intersection of science and art. I started to get very much interested in astronomy and, and tried my luck and studied astronomy. And this is an archival interview with Monastel. I think Saturn was the planet that interested me the most because of the rings. And uh, I thought it was so beautiful. Even though he had this side passion for astronomy, Bonestell still went on to build a career as an architectural designer. He designed the facade of New York City's famous Chrysler Building and the building over Grand Central Station. He worked on the design of the U.S. Supreme Court Building in Washington, D.C., and San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. Then he became a set designer in Hollywood, painting fantastical backdrops for movies like Citizen Kane and The Hunchback of Notre Dame and War of the Worlds. He brought to life in vivid detail the landscapes of imagination, but his particular love was painting visions of outer space. He's actually been here in our story all along, sort of behind the scenes. In the 1940s, he illustrated many of John Campbell's astounding science fiction magazine covers. Yeah. In the early 50s, he illustrated Werner von Braun's moon travel articles in Collier's magazine. Oh, Werner von Braun was a great friend of mine. He was husky and big. Uh-huh. They had very fine features, almost like a girl. Uh, Delicate hands. He also painted the set for the 1950 movie Destination Moon, based on Robert Heinlein's sci-fi book. Uh, Heinlein, he was all right, but uh, he had peculiar prejudices. Bomastel was there at so many stops along our journey to the moon. He helped both sci-fi writers and rocketeers visually convey the future they were imagining. You know these paintings. These are the images you think of when you think of space. Sleek silver rockets shooting through the stars, men in futuristic spacesuits exploring bright red planets. 
But after the Apollo 11 moon landing in 1969, Bonestell's 40-foot mural of the lunar landscape was seen with new eyes. When the Apollo astronauts got there, they realized that this is not really what the moon looked like. This Bonestell mural, although dramatic and uh, beautiful, is not scientifically accurate. In kind of a sad way, stepping foot on the moon woke us up from some of our science fiction dreams. Artists and writers who had been imagining spaceflight in the 1950s and the 1960s are both very excited by the realization of seeing actual space exploration happening, and then they have to take that into account and grapple with the realities of what they're learning There weren't striking lunar plateaus and craggy mountain ranges, breathtaking like a wild west in the night sky. The real colors of the moon weren't shades of purple. They were muted and monotone. The surface was rocky and rough. If the landscape was majestic, it was majestic in its sparseness. It's Boyd. So, Chesley Bonestell's magical mural was taken down. The Museum of Science in Boston carefully pulled it off the wall and rolled it up. They gave it to the National Air and Space Museum, which has kept it in storage for the past 50 years. A dream tucked away. Do you want to hear the story of how we landed on the moon in July 1969? I'm sure you already know it. You've heard the audio of Neil Armstrong. You've seen the pictures of the American flag. But maybe you pick up on different details now. Maybe now you see Lyndon Johnson standing there at the Kennedy Space Center the place he named on the morning of July 16th, 1969, as Apollo 11 is getting ready to launch. And the precise way he takes out a handkerchief and blots the sweat off his face reminds you so much of how he appeared seven years earlier when he was watching President John Kennedy's moon speech at Rice University. He was an architect, but also an onlooker, then and now, powerful, but also somehow powerless. Or maybe this time, you spot Werner Von Braun inside the launch control center. He's looking out the big windows at his Saturn V rocket in the distance as it prepares for liftoff. And what you notice is that he's wearing thick glasses and his hair is silver. And you think, when did that happen? So much time passing. Maybe your gaze turns to the astronauts, but you see them differently. When Apollo 11 rises up from the ground, you imagine their perspective. They can't hear the roar of the engines, 
or see the burst of flames as this metal monster lifts into the sky, all they experience is the vibration, the violent shake of being strapped into a machine that's propelling to the moon. As the rocket lifts off, you see that Ralph Abernathy and the black families who came to Cape Canaveral to protest the inequities of the Apollo project, you see that they're standing there watching, momentarily transfixed as the spaceship pushes off from the Earth. And then you notice that their singing starts up again. details are all part of the moon story, but they're details that sometimes get cut from the script for the sake of making the achievement tidy, less complicated. Eagle Houston, we rig you now. You're a go for PDI, over. Let me tell you a version of the moon landing now. It took several days for Apollo 11 to get to the moon and to be ready to touch down. Do you remember Charlie Duke, the astronaut you heard at the very beginning of the first episode? Uh, a lot of uh, memories flood, especially when I look at a half moon. This time, when you hear the moon landing story, zoom in on his voice. Not Neil Armstrong's or Buzz Aldrin's or Michael Collins. Charlie Duke is the one talking to them from Earth. They chose him as the only voice they would hear over their headsets. He's on the mission control team. And he is the astronaut's lifeline to the room full of people helping them from the mission control center in Houston. Uh, sometime before the descent started, uh, Gene Krantz, the flight director, uh, said, lock the door, nobody's coming in and nobody's going out. And so the tension began to rise. The staff there in Houston were all locked inside the room, singularly focused on landing these men on the moon. Across the country, in Washington, D.C., a journalist named Marty Weil stood staring at a TV screen in a corner of the Washington Post newsroom. He was a Metro reporter at the time. He still is. Oh, I was covering the same things as I was covering now. I was covering Metro, and I'd been at the Post only four or five years. And... I just didn't have a television at home. It was a great benefit to be assigned to work that day. I'm sure I would have gone somewhere to see this, but it was incredible to be working on a newspaper, to be aware of what was going on, and to be able to be there with your colleagues in the office, watching this on TV. No one was doing anything else. 50 years later, He's the only journalist still at the Post who worked here during the Apollo 11 moon landing. He's the memory of the newsroom. And for many reporters here over the years, he's also been its heart. 
Today, you have screens everywhere, but in those days, it was all typewriters, no computers, obviously, and we had in the entire newspaper only a couple of black and white TVs. So I was over at somebody else's area where we could watch on a black and white TV that might have had a 12-inch screen, and everybody was gathered around the TVs then to watch that landing. As the astronauts were circling the moon and planning their landing, a Soviet spacecraft was circling the moon, plotting its landing, too. That spacecraft was called Luna 15. It had the same name as the very first probe to hit the moon, which Sergei Korolev had designed. In early 1969, shortly after the successful Apollo 8 flight, the Soviet Union realized that it wouldn't be able to pull off a human landing on the moon before the United States did. So it switched tactics. It decided to send a robotic probe to the moon to collect lunar samples. If it could do that either before or around the same time as the Apollo 11 flight, then it would look as though both countries had made it to the lunar surface and back around the same time the moon race could sort of be considered a draw. So, the Soviet Union launched Luna 15 three days before Apollo 11. But when Apollo 11 got to the moon, Luna 15 was still orbiting it. It was having trouble figuring out how to land. Apollo 11 then started preparing for its own descent to the lunar surface. And uh, so the descent started, and uh, we started having all these problems, uh, communication dropouts. And uh, it was very important you had data from the spacecraft. Right? So we had to reorient the spacecraft to get the best antenna position so we could get the data. Then we started having these computer alarms uh, where they were uh, overloaded computer, basically. You know, 1201 alarm, 1202 alarm. Roger, 1202, we copy it. The communication, now the computer alarms, and, and you're getting really close to the moon, and so the tension is rising in mission control. Then Charlie Duke heard Neil Armstrong's voice over his headset. Neil said, this, I can't land here, it's too rough. So he leveled off and flew on several miles across the moon. Then he pitched up, stopped his forward velocity and started down. Well, that took a lot of extra fuel. So now we're having uh, a fuel problem. And we had 60 seconds uh, from that point to, that we had to land. And uh, I remember calling uh, uh, Eagle 60 Seconds. 60 Seconds. Lights on. Down two and a half. Forward. Forward. And then I called Eagle 30 Seconds. Down a half. 30 Seconds. Forward. And he wasn't on the, they had not landed, but they were getting close. The tension was rising among viewers in the newsroom, too. The countdown clock was counting down, and you knew they had only a few seconds to decide to make that landing or to abort, and they couldn't find exactly the right place, and they were skimming along. And 
No one knew exactly what was going to happen. It was about the most suspenseful thing that you'd ever seen on TV. You could cut the tension in mission control. It was so quiet and uh, we were holding our breath. Are we going to get it done? Contact light. Okay, engine stop. And when we heard contact engine stop, the it was like popping a balloon with the, the air going out of this tension out of the room. And then uh, especially after a few seconds later, uh, Neil uh, came up and said, uh, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. I was so excited, I couldn't even say tranquility. It came out twang, uh, and I corrected myself. Roger, twang, tranquility, we copy you on the ground. And then suddenly they were down, and they made it. And everyone was deliriously excited. There wasn't a more exciting moment you could remember in the newsroom, for example. People are pretty calm about everything, but people were genuinely excited about that. I said, Roger, we copy you on the ground. You got, got a bunch of guys, guys about to turn blue. We're, we're breathing, breathing again. again. Thanks a lot. And so it was, you know, that kind of relaxing experience. But the race wasn't over just yet. Luna 15 was still circling when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin touched down. It was preparing to land while they planted the American flag and took pictures and collected samples. So Luna 15's in orbit around the moon when the Apollo 11 crew gets there? NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry. What we don't know at the time on the U.S. side is that the, they're having some problems with the spacecraft. The altimeter was malfunctioning. Which is critical to figure out how you're going to land because you have no eye or above the surface, right? Uh, and so it kept making loops of the moon as the Soviet engineers back on Earth worked on figuring out how to get Luna to safely descend. What happened was uh, Neil and Buzz get in the Eagle, they land on the moon, they walk around the moon, they get back in the lunar module, they try and get a night's sleep, which was only partially successful, I think. Uh, and just a few hours before they're, they're ready to, to launch back off the moon, uh, the Soviets decide, well, okay, it's now or never. The altimeter still wasn't quite working properly, but the Russians had come up with a strategy and by remote control, they started lowering Luna 15 toward the surface. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had begun their preparations to lift off the moon, but they were still about two hours from departure. Luna 15 lowered, lowered, and then reception cut out. It crashed into a mountain on the moon, and Luna 15 was destroyed. Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev eventually issued a statement congratulating the United States on their achievement. They had to sort of, you know, swallow, swallow big and, uh, and go, well, you know, congratulations, the United States, you landed on the moon. It was much the way President Eisenhower, years before, had congratulated the Soviet Union on the launch of Sputnik. Russians hadn't been able to watch the live moonwalk on Soviet TV, but they did, of course, hear news of it. A story, albeit not a particularly large one, ran on the front page of the Pravda newspaper the next day. The treatment was very different in the United States. 
There, it eclipsed everything else that was happening. The most iconic American news coverage of the moon landing came from TV anchor Walter Cronkite on CBS. The broadcast of the landing and the redocking lasted about 30 hours. And of those 30 hours, Cronkite was on air for 27 of them. The CBS News director at the time likened the whole broadcast to, quote, a big blockbuster kind of motion picture. CBS built replicas of the moon and the landing module. They had special effects. A moon landing had gone from being the stuff of fictional books and magazines to fictional TV shows and movies to now being shown live on the news. Certain clips of the Apollo 11 coverage, of course, have become iconic, and they get replayed whenever an anniversary special about the moon landing comes around. But also there, in the hours and hours of Cronkite programming, were interviews he did with science fiction writers. This is Robert Heinlein, on air after the lunar module had touched down. I think this whole business today, this week, has been thought of in many cases in too small terms. This is the greatest event in all the history of the human race up to this time. This is, today is New Year's Day of the year one. If we don't change the calendar, historians will do so. And we are going to go on out not only to the moon, to the stars, we're going to spread. Arthur C. Clarke was also on the program, answering Cronkite's questions. Everything that's happened was just as, as you guys who uh, wrote about this long before we even knew how we are going to get there, visualized it. Yes, I sometimes feel that I'm going to wake up and find that I'm sleeping on my typewriter, you know, and it's all a dream. But you know, I think, uh, Bob, we science fiction writers have brainwashed the engineers, so they may be doing things now, copying our stories, uh, which is why it looks familiar. I can't imagine a moment to, to, to equal this. Uh, the only thing I could imagine is if some fellow came forward and could say positively, we're not going to have any more war. I think this is a step in that direction because this sort of thing is making our stupidities here on Earth seem more and more intolerable. And I think this may be the greatest result of the space program. Just like with a good science fiction story, the moon landing offered both a great adventure tale and a critical look at the very nature of our human existence. And part of what we found out about ourselves from going to the moon was not just philosophical. It was scientific. The astronauts who went there gathered moon rocks and they brought them back to geologists on Earth. Before Apollo, we really knew almost nothing uh, about the moon. This is Donald Brownlee, an astrobiologist at the University of Washington. But now we have rocks in hand and a lot of data in, in hand. Uh, we think we understand generally how the moon formed. 
the clues were in the rocks themselves. The composition of the moon, particularly its isotopic composition for oxygen and tungsten, are identical to the uh, Earth's mantle, of which no other extraterrestrial materials. We have tens of thousands of meteorites and also samples of Mars. And uh, the fact that everything else is different, but the Earth and Moon samples are the same, suggests that they were somehow related. A prominent theory emerged from these samples that the Moon actually formed from Earth. A planet-sized object crashed into the Earth a few billion years ago. Debris flew off from this impact, and then that eventually coalesced into the moon that spins around us. So when astronaut Bill Anders expressed after the Apollo 8 flight, we came all this way to explore the moon, and the most important thing is that we discovered the Earth, he was perhaps intuiting something more fundamentally true than he even realized. The moon is part of us. From its perch in our orbit, it has also shaped life on this planet. So the moon has a number of uh, interesting effects uh, on Earth, one of which uh, is that it stabilizes the spin axis of Earth. Well, what difference does that make? Well, the tilt of a spin axis of a planet determines its seasons. The, uh, another effect on Earth is the tides, uh, the, the ocean tides. Uh, the effect of the moon on our ocean tides is about three times that of, of the sun. And uh, the reasons that some creatures became amphibious and ended up on, on land is because they get deposited every time the tide goes out. Some, some things get stuck at high tide. So it was an encouragement for things to go from the ocean to the land. And some people think, well, there would be no life without our our big moon. That's possible, but it seems a little unlikely. But it would certainly be different. Uh, The the Earth would have evolved differently, and its biology would have evolved differently uh, without our moon. So uh, many of us think that we're actually quite lucky to have this uh, beautiful big white thing in, in the sky. Discovering more about who we are, why we are, That wasn't what motivated politicians to make the moon landing a national goal, but it was part of what motivated the scientists and the science fiction writers. So, you know, in terms of meta-human understanding, I suppose, and is that worth a lot of money? I don't know. Uh, But, but, you know, our our understanding of our place in the universe and and are we alone and uh, where do we come from and how old is the universe, all that stuff comes from our space program. For a brief moment during and after the Apollo 11 landing, it seemed our imaginations had set us free. Fiction had convinced us to spend real time and real effort and real money seeking greater understanding of this mysterious universe 
and this mysterious planet we live on with its rare, powerful moon. But then it's as if we felt the need to grow up, I guess. That Chesley Bonestell moon painting was pulled down, and those grand pronouncements of Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke, they seemed silly too when only days after the moon landing, we were back to business as usual here on Earth. Calendars didn't change to mark 1969 as year one. War certainly didn't stop. Everyone went right back to it. Even the Apollo program lost its luster and lost its funding. The moon missions stopped in 1972. And humans haven't been back to the moon ever since. It was kind of like the Wild West. Once the actual frontier became more discovered, we were less captivated by it. How long was the period in American history depicted by the cattle drives and the gunslingers and the sheriffs in Dodge City and Deadwood, South Dakota? Space historian Howard McCurdy. How long was that period? 30, 40 years. That's it. It was just a flash. And the golden age of space exploration is kind of about the same. We want to go to space because science fiction told us it would be cool and exciting. This is science fiction expert Alec Neville Lee. I mean, I, th I personally think it is cool and exciting, but I also think that we have to be aware of the ways in which our feelings about space are affected by stories that were written as, as entertainment. When I first started my reporting for this series, I went down to Cape Canaveral to wrap my head around this slice of shoreline that had sent humans to the moon. In its heyday in the 60s, Cape Canaveral was filled with families camped out on the beach to watch rocket launches. The nearby town of Cocoa Beach had establishments like the Satellite Motel, which was topped by a huge globe with circling satellites. And there was the Moon Hut, a burger joint with a neon sign of the moon and the stars. But those are long gone. Lightning eventually struck the big globe atop the satellite motel, and heavy winds ultimately blew it down for good. Astronaut Boulevard still runs through Cocoa Beach, and tourists passing through can buy space trinkets and shops, but it's a place that seems to mostly traffic in memories. After the Apollo missions ended, the United States still used launch pads at Cape Canaveral to send astronauts on the space shuttle for several decades. But by 2011, that American space shuttle program ended too. Today, private companies like SpaceX and Boeing are using some of the launch pads, but much of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station still has an abandoned feel to it. It's a strange place. Fair. Sonny Witt, the Air Force's historian down there, he drove me around the base in his pickup truck. Let's go down here, we'll talk a little bit more, then we're going to take this road up and around, okay? He pointed out the original launch pads for Mercury flights. This down here is where our first man in space 
Right here is where they flew from. And the blockhouses that served as mission control for Gemini. Okay, there's the launch pad, and there's the ocean. Just a couple of hundred feet. Just. But it felt like we were looking at ruins that nature had reclaimed. And there were railroad tracks between two pads here and two pads down there. At times, he had to take a machete out of his truck bed to Ooh. slash a path for us to walk through the overgrown beach brush. So much of the rocket complex seemed to have been almost swallowed by the shore and the grasses and the sand. And that's what nature does. It forces us to keep building, keep tending, or it quickly undoes our work. I, I, I mean, it sort of shows how ephemeral all that stuff is, which is, I think it tells you something maybe about the space program too, that things kind of come and they go, and, and what's left behind is, you know, concrete rebar, you know, in a lot of places. Concrete and vines and sun and wind. After serving in mission control for Apollo 11, Charlie Duke got his turn to fly as an astronaut on one of the very final Apollo missions, Apollo 16. It launched from pad 39A at Cape Canaveral, the same launch pad that Apollo 8 and Apollo 11 used and that now SpaceX uses. And one night before Duke was scheduled to launch into space, he had that dream he described to us in the first episode, where he landed on the moon, he followed a set of tire tracks, he came upon a person in a spacesuit, he lifted the faceplate. And it was me. It was a haunting dream. He wasn't sure, though, if it was a bad or a good omen for his upcoming flight, so he didn't mention it to anyone at the time. He kept it locked away in his own mind. Charlie Duke told me that story years and years later in the course of my reporting, and I found myself so drawn to it. It's eerie and otherworldly, and most of all, it seemed to me that the thing Charlie Duke feared or hoped he would find on the moon when he got there was himself. So to return in the end to our original question, why did we go to the moon? That, to me, is the answer. We went for ourselves. We went to uncover something deeper about who we are, for better or worse. If there's a continued romantic attachment to the moon, it comes from the fact that humans look up, look out, and are immensely curious um, and very capable about figuring out who we are. We're still working on that and trying to learn more and more about where we are and what that means. I think it is extraordinary if you kind of back up in a big cosmic way and think about these 
beings that are tethered to the surface of this planet, the third rock from this sun and this tiny star that's in a not very important corner of uh, our galaxy, the amount that humanity has been able to learn in just the last 100 years or several hundred years about our solar system, about um, the galaxies that it is a part of, about the physics of how that works, um, and about beginning to understand not only our planet and our moon, but starting to look at other planets and other moons. And so the romance of looking up into the sky in that way is wanting to know more about ourselves and wanting to picture ourselves stepping off this planet. What got us there was the creation of stories, sci-fi stories, political stories, Stories that made a journey to the moon feel necessary and inevitable. We as Americans like to believe that we're special. Uh, the term that historians use is uh, exceptional. So American exceptionalism is a big, is a big theme that, he, that people explore. And Apollo is the perfect story to support that idea. It's a story in which we took it on the chin from the Soviet Union when they launched Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2, and we couldn't seem to tie our shoelaces for the first few years of the space program. And then, you know, we sort of got ourselves organized, and we went to the moon, and we did this wonderful stuff. And our protagonist in this story failed to do those things. Uh, so it is a, a, a great example of sort of this uh, exceptionalistic American story. This is historian Roger Launius. It, it's sort of, it's almost like creation myths. Um, you know, it's one in which, um, you know, we're comforted by when we're old and we want to teach the young uh, that this is the way we are as a people and that we can do anything we set our minds to. Has creating that myth helped us? Has it kept the dream more alive? Or has it locked it away? Has it broadened our understanding or limited it? Endings can manipulate. Where we choose to stop this story can either reinforce or undercut the narrative you were expecting. Did you want it to end when Neil Armstrong planted a flag? How about all the way back when Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space? Or maybe when the Chinese had the first soft landing on the far side of the moon at the beginning of 2019. How about when the National Air and Space Museum finally unfurls the Chesley Bonestell Lunar Landscape Mural and displays it as part of a new exhibit in 2022? The story never stops. It's not even a story, really, except that we make it so. It's a collection of events across the chaos of time and space that we as humans can't help but want to connect, make sense of, find some meaning in. That's who we are. Storytellers, dreamers, time travelers who feel pulled by both the future and the past. 
We make heroes and villains. We are heroes and villains. We kill and create. We die and endure. Only two months after the Apollo 11 landing, we were already crafting the myth. The first documentary on the race to the moon came out in September 1969. And this is how it began. Can you believe it? Can you realize that we, that you and I, that all of us, have actually begun the exploration of another world? We have taken the first historic step into our solar system. I am Werner von Braun. This motion picture was produced to enable you to experience more personally and vividly the most dramatic events of the Apollo 11 story. So, come with us. We are going to the moon. of Moonrise. I'm really grateful you listened all the way through it with us. We've poured our hearts into making this podcast, so if you've enjoyed it, the most wonderful thing you could do is recommend it to a friend. We have five big Moonrise posters that are very cool that we've decided to give away for the finale, so for a chance to win one of them, and we'll sign it for you, just share the podcast with friends on social media You can either use the hashtag Moonrise or you can tag me in it so that we'll see it somehow. My Twitter handle is Lily underscore Cunningham and my Instagram handle is True Places. Or if you don't use social media at all, just share it with a friend some other way and tell me about it. All right, now to the thank yous. First... Let me give enormous thanks to Bishop Sand. He's been the producer with me on this series, and he's done such a beautiful job composing the music and creating the soundscape and editing and mixing the tape, workshopping scripts with me, tracking down archival audio. The list is too long to get through all of it, but I just want to thank him so much for being a wonderful co-creator in bringing this story to life and for being so passionate and thoughtful and positive about this project at every turn. Also, every episode you hear me thank project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, director of audio Jess Stahl, editor Carol Alderman, But there is, of course, a larger group of people here at The Post who have all helped make this podcast possible. But these women in particular have been champions and collaborators from day one, and I'm deeply grateful for their help. Jess Stahl really deserves special thanks for giving us the time and the resources to pull off this project and for having such confidence in us along the way. Now, there are many institutions that have helped us throughout this process as well, like 
the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, where we had our launch event. But I also want to give a special thank you to the National Air and Space Museum, especially Teasel Muir Harmony, who's a historian there. From the very start of my work on this podcast, she steered me toward experts and toward materials that would be helpful, and I'm just so grateful for that guidance. Finally, a thank you to all the experts who appeared on this final episode. Bill Barry, chief historian at NASA, Donald Brownlee, a professor of astrobiology at the University of Washington, Charlie Duke, a former astronaut and retired U.S. Air Force officer, Roger Lanius, a historian formerly with both NASA and the National Air and Space Museum, Howard McCurdy, a professor of space policy at American University, Alec Nevila Lee, author of Astounding, Marty Weil, a reporter at the Washington Post, Margaret Weidekamp, chair of the Space History Department at the National Air and Space Museum, and Sunny Witt, director of operations at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Archival audio in this episode is from Veritone Digital, John Mosley, NASA, and the documentary Footprints on the Moon. I've heard from a lot of you that you'd like to learn more now about the space race, and there are a lot of great books that our guests in this series have authored or that I found useful in my research. So I'm going to create a Moonrise reading list you can check out on the Washington Post site. Thank you again for listening. Please share the series with friends and stay tuned for whatever podcast adventure we go on next. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise, over and out.